Hello and welcome to the Recursive Podcast. Our next guest is one of the power ladies of the Bulgarian VC sector. Elena Khovacheva is the managing partner at Brightcap Ventures. With a background in finance and investment banking, Elena has an MBA from Stanford University. She grew as a professional in the US and UK markets and her expertise ranges from investment banking to e-commerce and real estate. Eventually, Elena came back to Bulgaria to contribute to the growth of the local tech ecosystem. As an investor, Elena is also part of the European Women in VC initiative, trying to bridge the gap for funding for female founders. Elena Khawachova, welcome to the Recursive Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I, I was so impressed that you went to Stanford because it's uh, one of the um, universities that I've been to in the US and I love the campus yes. and the whole, um, the whole Silicon Valley um, energy that resonates there. So I, I kind of envy you for, for spending some time uh, in this wonderful place. But um, you left for the US to study and later on start your career in finance there. Share a bit about this um, steps in your life. Sure, yeah. Um, so I left uh, right after high school um, when, I, when I was 19 um, and went to study without actually at all having an idea what I was going to do afterwards. Um, I went to the University of Richmond, which is in the South, uh, very different than other parts of the US. Um, and I was kind of thrown into this new environment. I hadn't really traveled much before. Um, and I kind of learned to um, first speak English <laughs> like Americans do or, or close to um, and then try to find my own kind of strength to be on my own because um, yeah, I didn't have any money. I went on a full scholarship. Uh, I didn't have time to call my parents on the phone. There was no email at the time. So you learn to be independent. You learn to take care of yourself. You learn to, to work and support yourself. Um, and then after I graduated, I ended up staying there for another 12 years or so. Um, I moved to New York. I worked there for four years. Then I did my MBA at Stanford, which are two of the best years of my life, I have to say. Uh, just like, you know, you witnessed. Uh, it's a beautiful campus. Lots of very interesting, intelligent people that um, have a lot of different diverse backgrounds. Um, then I had a short stint in Boston, came back to New York for work and eventually moved back first to London and then to Bulgaria. So I've been here for about 15 years now. Yeah. And you spent about 15 years outside of Bulgaria in the UK and the US. Um, what and why did you decide to return? Yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> actually the reasons are very trivial. So there's no like groundbreaking decision making analysis that went into my decision. Um, I basically got married in 2005 and uh, with my husband, who's Bulgarian, but lived in the States at the time, we decided to move back to Europe. So I went to London, but an opportunity came up for him to work in Bulgaria and he wanted to come back here. So we had this like long distance for a short time and I really loved London and my job and my friends and uh, to be honest I was a bit skeptical uh, about returning here but our first child was born and we had to find a place to live together as a family so uh, he prevailed and I, <laughs> I, I returned with, with our baby uh, and then our second kid was born and I kind of settled in and enjoyed actually being back here close to family. Some friends from high school um, ended up um, finding a really interesting job, um, joining a, the founding team of a startup um, in the B2B procurement area. Worked there for four years and, you know, four years ago we started Brightcap. So I'm quite happy actually. And uh, that fate brought me back here. That's amazing because now you are directly influencing and supporting young Bulgarian founders that are trying to get a global exposure and mm. achieve mm. global success which is amazing. Um, which part of the American business culture would you like to see adopted in the ecosystem here? Uh, we've discussed this numerous times and it's always mm. this like confidence it's, and this yeah. uh, go global and right. uh, this yeah. thing. I mean, what I, what I really like about the American culture um, is that people are not afraid to fail um, and they think outside the box they're creative they actually 
even in school, like they learn how to think of their own. They don't have to memorize, you know, facts and repeat them. They, uh, from a very early age, they learn how to do public speaking, how to debate, um, how to come up with new ideas, new projects, uh, very practical uh, kind of way of teaching uh, and learning. So I think that's one thing that was missing when I was growing up. And that I, I think gives American professional people like a lot of confidence. Um, not only that they can think big, but that even if they fail, it's not the end of the world. And actually yeah. you learn a lot more from failure than you do from successes. Um, so that's definitely one thing that is missing still here. But I think people are um, getting more and more yeah. accustomed to failing and, and thinking that it's not a big deal. So definitely that's something that I admire there. Is there any part of the Bulgarian culture that might be helpful and useful in the American business world? Yeah, I think Bulgarians are really hardworking and mm. and also very efficient, I have to say. Um, there's a study that was done by McKinsey a while ago that, especially for startups, that compared like uh, the revenue generation from startups relative to the equity they raise. So I think in the US for B2B startups, it was like 0.5. So for every dollar that they raise, they generate 50 cents of revenue. While in our part of the world, in Eastern Europe, it's about 2.8, so 5.6 times more than the US. So I think, you know, here we're, because we've been used to living with very little and making ends meet and, you know, being creative and uh, doing something with like, very little. I think that's that's definitely one thing that uh, mm. that is that is positive, and that also creates an arbitrage, right? So, if one company you invest in a Bulgarian startup at a certain valuation, that same company, when they go to the U.S. without even like having any uptick in revenues, you know, anything mm. like that, they will be valued much higher because because of that trend. Mm. Uh, the strongest trees grow where the wind is strongest, not where the best soil lies, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, how did you grow this appetite for the startup world ecosystem? <laughs> it's very different from corporate and... Yeah, it is. Um, my first job was in investment banking um, in New York, and that's definitely like <laughs> far from <laughs> working for a startup. But my second yeah. job was actually... Uh, in a startup, which was the first online investment bank at mm. the time, um, which covered uh, emerging e-commerce and technology companies. Um, so I was in research there covering those companies mm. like eBay, Amazon, and some others that don't exist anymore. Um, so that was my first exposure. I was living the life um, of a startup, and I was also covering more mature public tech companies, so seeing kind of uh, the whole aspect from you know working in a startup to going public and uh, being successful and mature so that was my first exposure um, to the startup world and then at Stanford you know it's just the the mecca and uh, you know we had like speakers and lecturers come talk to us like Steve Jobs was there um, you know Warren Buffett all these like really um, interesting and successful mm. um, entrepreneurs that just the vibe is there um, and then I worked for private equity after I graduated, so I got the investment side, um, um, and the investment angle um, in working for a startup uh, and investing in a startup. And then when I came here, I again like worked for that mm. B2B procurement startup, which was very different than the online investment bank that I worked at because it was, you know, I joined the founding team. There were only three people. It was a different kind of stage of development. And I was involved like in a very small startup. You do everything. Yeah. Um, so you see the business growing from nothing to something, um, which is different than, you know, being one of, you know, a hundred people in a startup, uh, <clears throat> which was what I was in my first job. So that's kind of like all these different aspects um, gave me a lot of knowledge mm. uh, uh, and different angles to, to a startup from building one to investing in one. Um, and this is how I used these experiences in, in this job that I mm. run now. I, I find one thing that is in common between working on Wall Street, because I had a friend of mine at work there, now lives in Mountain View and works for Apple, yeah. and these, uh, these 14 to 18 hour work days. Yeah. So this is the common thing with, between startups and, and, and Wall Street. Yeah. Um, 
uh, how you, you started mentioning how did you how you entered the, the VC industry. Um, is there any particular story, or was it like an opportunity that arise for you to join this um, venture capital companies? The fund breakout. No, no. Generally, your initial work with with venture capital. Um, just is there something in particular that triggered this? To start, uh, mm. in the, I mean, it just kind of happened naturally. I mean, I wasn't mm. really when I was in college. I wasn't planning mm. uh, of what jobs I wanted to do next. Um, my first jobs were on the sales side, so I was advising customers. Mm. And then while I was at Stanford, I took a lot of different classes just to expand my horizons and see what other job opportunities there would be. And I took this private equity class that um, as part of the class, we had to do a project with a private equity firm in, the, in, in San Francisco. So um, I picked this private equity real estate fund and worked there. and. Um, kind of liked the uh, accountability and the responsibility that you take as an owner um, and also the tangible aspect of it like you actually see the the physical building mm. um, and you also see the whole journey from deciding to invest in something um, helping it grow and then eventually exiting kind of like giving birth to a baby and seeing it grow and becoming a teenager and you know going on their own so that's really kind of what um, gave me an interest in this. Mm. Um, and also the other thing I find with, with the VCs that um, and entrepreneurship is that you work as a team. Like if you're in investment banking, you have one project, you try to finish your pitch deck, then if there's a deal, you'd work on the deal and then it's gone. Um, with startup, the startup world, you actually work, even as an investor, you work in a team. So you work in a team with the founders who do the majority of the work, but you try to help where and with what you can. And you also work as a team with your partners in the fund because, you know, in our fund, we're a very small team, but everybody, um, even though we've all had an entrepreneurial background, everybody has a special skill in one area or another. You know, there's a tech person, there's a finance and investment person, there's mm. a person that's more focused on scaling. Um, so we, even though like each of us sources companies on their own and becomes the point person for that company, all of us work as a team when that company goes through one of those challenges uh, that I mentioned and everybody mm. gives inputs based on their own skills. Um, changing professions and careers is always some kind of a gives reflections on your own self, what you like doing, what your values are. Did you discover something new about yourself when switching from corporate and this investment banking into the venture capital world? Yeah, I mean, I discovered that I didn't like to work 14 hours a day. <laughs> For sure, even though I was young then and it didn't bother me that much. But if I were to do it now, like I probably wouldn't be able to, to be honest. Um, I also learned a lot there though, and that's something that I'm very grateful for because mm. it opened a lot of doors for me to do a job that I would enjoy um, later on and that I can you know, have the foundation to pick from uh, a lot of different opportunities. Uh, the VC world, as I said, like one thing that I really enjoyed is working as a team. The other thing is that you meet so many different founders in so many different industries solving so many different problems that it's, it's a, it just fulfills your curiosity in a way and you learn a lot and you feel like you're growing yourself. Um, and that's definitely what I like. Also, you, you grow like in different areas, like the, the very early startups have different problems than the ones that scale and become bigger and then eventually either get bought or yeah. go public. So there are a, a variety of different challenges um, across the road, uh, across the journey. So it's it's different than just being an investment banker and doing one thing over and over for different clients, but the same exact kind of work. Right, so you have this creativity and this teamwork, yeah. team effort type of I think, realization yeah. that you prefer to do. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, what is the impact you would like to achieve through the investments with uh, Breitkamp Ventures? there's something that you're aiming at well we i think we're all aiming to create some like successful founders that are competitive on the global scene 
Um, I think what we've realized we also would like to do is not only make money and create those global founders, but also have some impact like social impact, mm -hmm. some, some other impact on people's lives. Um, so we've uh, invested in a lot of health tech and digital health um, startups that actually like, you know, have tangible effects on the lives of those people. Um, like one of our investments, uh, first investments in health tech was in a fertility platform that helped women with reproductive challenges. Um, and in during their life of like seven, eight years, they had helped, I think it was like 65,000 women get pregnant. So that, that's something that you actually see the effects of. Um, and you understand you have an impact on mm. those people's lives. Not only, you know, you make money in the process, but you also have some positive impact. We have a couple of fintech investments also that have that angle as well. So we try to find something in addition to, uh, uh, you know, an interesting promising startup that's going to make money. Also, we we're really interested in the impact they're going to have on on people's lives. Um. With BreadCup, you invest in companies that are already on the international market, but have a strong connection to Bulgaria. Um, why did you choose this approach? To be honest, it's, it's, it's much easier to import into Bulgaria than export from Bulgaria. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's easier to find uh, founders that have a connection to Bulgaria mm -hmm. that are already located where the, where the markets and the customers are. Uh, and help them either set up a team here or expand their tech team here. So it kind of we take advantage of both like strengths in the Bulgarian market. It's the tech talent in the U.S. or Western Europe market. It's it's you know just the size and the scale of the markets. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is um, I think it just it nat happened naturally to us because all of us have lived and worked abroad and we have a vast network of contacts, people we know, people we've worked with before, uh, that we either find founders through that network or we get referred someone uh, by someone that we know well. So I think so far we've had 19 investments and about 16 or 17 have come from our network or referrals mm. by people we know. So this is kind of our proprietary network that we wanted to develop. Um, and of course, if they're based in the States, it's much easier for them to fundraise their next round because they have the traction there. Uh, they know some of the VCs maybe there. They can hire local teams there mm. and experts, especially in sales and marketing, because that's one thing that we're still catching up with. Um, so it's much easier if they're based there than here. Of course, we invest in companies that are based um, solely in Bulgaria, like especially those early stage accelerator type companies that mm. are still um, you know facing the expansion abroad but it's much easier the other way around yeah totally understandable um, do you believe that there are any cultural setbacks uh, in the Bulgarian companies that are trying to scale into the US there's something that prevents them from um, I mean what for sure they have to set up um, an office there hmm. and start either traveling at the beginning and then later like hiring local people there. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there's also always the cultural kind of differences um, between any country, really, uh, not just Bulgaria and the US. Uh, but I think that once they position themselves there and um, hire a team there, you know, the, I don't think they're um facing any more challenges there's a bit of skepticism uh which is much less so from mm. american investors into our part of the world but with all these unicorns popping up um i think they're warming up to that uh we also what we do is when we co-invest in those founders that are located in the us or western europe for example we co-invest with local vcs so american or western european vcs or eastern european vcs um and through our common investments, we start a relationship with those VCs and they see the quality of the, of the startups here and mm -hmm. they start actually looking on their own. Um, even, you know, a lot of the American VCs, for example, have set up office, offices in London and Berlin. So they're, they're coming to Europe because there's so much capital in the States and mm -hmm. not that many <laughs> startups, good startups to uh, absorb that capital. So they're starting to look outside of the US as well. That's great. We would love to have the capital in the markets, right? 
yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have a favorite question that you ask founders? Something that really. Um, I don't think. I mean, I don't think that I have a favorite question. We mm. obviously ask very similar questions to all founders because we want to uncover, you know, the three main pillars the team, the market, and the product. I think every VC, you know, looks at those three things. But uh, what I'm personally always interested in is how they came up with a solution to a problem, mm. whether they were looking to find a problem and then build a solution around it, or whether they came across it in their daily life or in their professional life. So um, I always like to know, like, what made them um, start the business that they started. Start with why? why they started it yeah. start with why like i'm uh, just referring yeah, towards yeah, exactly. simon sinek's golden yeah. circle yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and how do you measure the potential of the early stage startups i'm, I'm involved here because i'm mm-hmm. have my very very early age it's yeah. like pre pre uh precede startups so those three things that i said you know <laughs> team yeah. market product okay. but i think it's very uh, what differentiates one vc from another is the questions they ask and and maybe their own knowledge and their own intuition uh, because they all look at those three pillars but what goes into that black box and what comes out is is different for every Mm. vc and i think where you know every vc evolves like so we get a lot more knowledge a lot of a lot more um maybe intuition even into what makes the founder a good founder because um, the product and the market, you can do a lot of research and, you know, the data is most probably out there. But for the founders, you actually need to know the person very well uh, for a while. So which is why we focus on finding founders from our network and kind of people that either we know well or somebody else that we trust knows them well. And so we want to see those founders that have not only the technical and business skills, mm. but that are also trustworthy, um, that are also confident, but not arrogant but confident enough to know that maybe they don't know everything Mm. and are willing to experiment and try things and be dynamic and adjust um, as time goes by so yeah one 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 thing that comes to my mind is i think i had a conversation with one of the angel investors here and asked him what what do you want to see in the founders and he was to be coachable Mm. So to be able to yeah. receive uh, uh, the advisory um, opinions and the things to uh, the other viewpoints. That's a very good point. And I have to say we've passed on a few investments that we thought were good investments, mm. solid markets, great products because of the founders, because we thought the founders were too arrogant and they thought they knew everything and mm. they were not open to you know, feedback. feedback. And those people also very rarely do they listen to the market and the customers because they think they know mm. best. And you have to be very close to your customers. You have to be able to adjust and not be rigid about, you know, the original idea that you had in mind. Be able to pivot, if you will, mm. sometimes or adjust it accordingly to what the market wants. In the past year, you have had two successful exits with Envio and Voom. Uh, not many VCs in the region have this experience. Do you think that the Bulgarian tech ecosystem is entering its next stage of maturity? And if so, what does this entail? Yeah, I just want to correct you. We've had four exits in the last All right. few years. <laughs> but those two are the most recent ones. Yeah, um, yeah for sure it's maturing. Um, I mean, there, it's maturing in both the startup quality but also uh, in the amount of capital and the decision-making of VCs um, Hmm. in investing in those startups and uh, having, you know, more founder-friendly terms and kind of knowing more about how to invest. Um, So in terms of the startups, of course, it's maturing because they're now a lot of serial entrepreneurs now that have had one or two successful startups already and are on their third, fourth. Um, so they have that experience of building and, and growing a startup. Um, and on the VC um, um, parts, like I said, there's a lot more capital. I think 10 or 15 years ago, there were only a couple of funds and now I think there are like 17 funds in Bulgaria, which which is a lot. Uh, they focus on different stages, you know, they're mm. accelerators, they're early stage, they're mes, uh, more like private equity. 
um, funds as well. So there's capital also that takes the startups from mm. beginning to kind of B and C rounds. Because um, back 10, 15 years ago, there was 11 that was an accelerator that backed companies at the beginning stages, but there was nobody to back them afterwards. Yeah. So that was a problem which doesn't exist anymore. That's great news. Um, and of course, I, I was talking um, to you in the, in the conversation before we started about uh, Flips Media, of yes. course, uh, fight my, my, my cost and my favorite, one of my favorite uh, yeah. startup exits. So it's one of the uh, bright cap ones, which is a huge mm -hmm. success. Um, there is no doubt that the strong engineering talent in the region exists, but um, what is still missing is the sales, product and marketing yeah. expertise. Um, how do you think that we can fill this gap faster? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we're maturing in that mm. sphere as well. Um, what we see a lot of our companies do is they hire like American or European sales and marketing people that build their teams. So they come with the experience. They also come with the networks and the knowledge in those markets. Um, and I think startups are learning from that experience and that, from that knowledge and from those people and building their own kind of next generation sales and marketing mm -hmm. experts. So that's definitely something that is, is happening, uh, which is part of the reason why we also want to import from abroad into Bulgaria, because those companies are already located there. They can not only easily fundraise, but hire those experts locally that uh, would feel more comfortable joining a U.S. or uh, European registered and set startup than a Bulgarian startup that they probably haven't even traveled to or know where it is on the map. So, <laughs> Yeah, this, uh, this is a great point. Yeah, having an office in the States makes uh, the talent also available the other way around. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting data uh, saying that the Europe have um, surpassed China in the number of unicorn companies in 2021. Uh, what do you think are Europe's advantages within this competition for capital and talent with China and the US? And um, what would it take for our team to get ahead? Yeah, I think if I compare Europe to the US, I mean, there's the tech talent is definitely here, historically speaking. And I think in terms of number of engineers, I think it's about the same. Um, but the U.S. is a much bigger market, so it's uh, we have that advantage here. Uh, the salaries are still relatively lower than the U.S., although they can buy a lot more here than <laughs> the American salaries can buy in the States. Mm. So the lifestyle is much better for those people. Uh, in terms of capital, I think... You know, the European uh, ecosystem is evolving in all these different hubs. And there are, you know, I think, I don't know how many cities in Europe that already have a unicorn. So, you know, those hubs are being created around uh, Europe. And, and a lot more capital is being deployed, not only from, you know, the IFIs like EIF and EBRD and IFC, but also from some pension funds, unfortunately not in Bulgaria, but other parts mm. of, of, of Europe. Uh, also, some high net worth and family offices that are kind of sick of real estate and are being warmed up to investing in more risky, but at the same time, higher return um, investments. And finally, what I mentioned earlier, I think the U.S. VCs are looking into Europe. So they have this capital that they want to deploy and they're looking for uh, great opportunities. And they've seen already those unicorns that you mentioned and mm. other solid companies. So they see the talent here. With China, I'm not, you know, we don't really like, that's not our end uh, kind of goal. Like we're more focused to Western Europe and the US, but I think there, there's a political risk. You know, we saw what happened with uh, TikTok and, you know, some of the other tech companies that uh, Alibaba, you know, there's that political risk um, that, you know, is unpredictable really, so. Mm. Yeah, and, uh Talking about political risk, we're currently in a very strange macroeconomic situation here in uh, Europe. And um, what can startups and companies do to increase their chances of fundraising in this uh, yeah. downturns? I think not only in Europe, I think yeah. it's global. So, um, I mean, what we tell our founders is, is two things. Like they need to be more cost um, efficient and careful where and on what they spend their costs. So now 
it's all about actually surviving rather than growing at any cost. It's 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 all about being profitable. Like a lot of VCs are focusing on profitability now rather than growing the top line at any cost. And the other thing we tell our founders is is also to be prepared for raising lower rounds at lower valuations. Um, so mm. you know, give up a bit more of their equity, like have terms that are not so founder friendly, but protect investors. Um, so be open for that, hopefully temporarily. Mm. Um, another thing that you're doing is being part of the return initiative, aiming to engage Bulgarians living abroad to give back and connect with the local mm. ecosystem. Um, how can we do better uh, in deploying the power of Bulgarian diaspora worldwide? Unlike Greece, for example, we haven't been that good in turning brain drain into brain gain yet. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that was a great initiative and it was a private initiative. Mm. So it wasn't started by the Bulgarian government no. um, <laughs> as it should be, I think. But uh, it's great that there are enthusiasts who want to, uh, to work on that. So I think, I mean, having lived abroad for so many years, I know that Bulgarians living abroad always have that attachment to Bulgaria mm -hmm. and some kind of nostalgic feelings to childhood, their friends and, and all that. So they all want to give back. Uh, and we've seen them do that. Like some of them become mentors, others, um, you know, invest in, um, in uh, or give money to NGOs, um, others invest in startups and funds. So everybody mm. does what they feel comfortable with. Uh, we also have the Bulgarian Innovation Hub in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. that you know. Um, so th that's again an NGO started by Bulgarian enthusiasts from the diaspora that are helping like startups go to the US. Uh, the brain drain is still not a brain gain because first, you know, Greece has those thousands of islands. So <laughs> it's easier to want to go back and live on an island. But, but more importantly, um, I think the political environment is here is, as you said, um, a bit uh uncertain and mm. so you know for people to return you know they they care about healthcare, they care about education they care about their standard of living and what their jobs will be and whether they can use their skill set that they've developed abroad here in jobs um that, that will fit them uh and if they'll have to deal with you know the administration and spend like three days to you know renew a passport or driver's license or whatever so it's uh, all these little things that make somebody decide to come or not come um some of them are not so little like the healthcare yeah. and the education system but um and you know hope we had some hope at one point i personally did that things were changing but we'll see <laughs> yeah we're doing our best aren't yeah. we so um from your point of view what makes a good leader because founders are basically the leaders of, of their small like teams uh, as you said it's team it's not founder based business so mm -hmm. what makes a good leader Elena? Um, I'm sure there are like many different traits uh, that make a good leader but what, what I can think of that kind of stands out is one you have to be smart um, and by smart, I mean smart enough to know that maybe you don't know everything and you need to hire the right people with the right expertise mm. to help you in certain areas. Um, I also think that relates to the second point is that you have to trust people that you hire. And mm -hmm. I think it's not good to micromanage because that doesn't give them like the feeling of, of freedom and achievement and personal growth. And being trusted. And being trusted. <laughs> exactly. Um the third thing maybe is you have to have emotional intelligence, mm. like to know how people feel, how they interact, um, whether they're happy, not happy, why all these things come from like being empathetic and having that emotional intelligence. You also, of course, have to have a vision and something you strongly believe in. That's why when we ask founders how they came up with a problem, it's much easier for them to convince us if they had that problem. Uh, themselves and were trying to solve it and couldn't find a solution and came up with a solution like this fertility clinic that I told you, you know, there are two women struggling with fertility challenges. So they came up with the idea. So that convinces us more that they're committed to this. And actually it comes out of personal pain um, that they, you know, couldn't solve. And, you know, and I think you have to be fun and funny and 
create a happy environment around you and which is not all about work and <laughs> you know like not sleeping um and having it as a badge of honor i'm not i'm just having four hours sleeps every night yeah no, i mean you need to enjoy you need to feel happy with your colleagues and have fun yeah totally agree on this you're part of this european women in vc mm-hmm. um and having this in mind um have you personally encountered any glass ceilings for women in the investment world um i I actually don't think I have, mm. but maybe I was lucky or maybe it was because when I worked in the US, I was in more like junior and mid-level positions. Mm. I do remember though, when I was an analyst at Citigroup, I had a managing director that came back to work after two weeks of giving birth. Um, and that was wow. not because there was a ceiling, but because she was afraid that if she had taken a longer maternity leave, like her clients would be gone and given to someone else. So it's like one of those, it's not necessarily a ceiling, but it's something that women, mothers face. Fathers, you know, they can't nurse, so they <laughs> they don't have that problem. They don't have to stay at home, but mothers do. And so that's kind of, I think, a biological, socioeconomic kind of ceiling, if you, if hmm. you will, that um, definitely exists. And I'm sure there are other ceilings, you know. It's, it's just uh, natural at the higher levels, in certain industries to be more male dominated and for women to feel awkward in those situations, like the other way around also, like there are some position, there's some uh, industries and, and jobs where there are more women and probably men don't feel <laughs> as comfortable. Mm. So, but in Bulgaria, to be honest, and I didn't really, I think historically, you know, women and men worked, um, And I think we're a leader in terms of, you know, managers at top positions. Like if you think of the big banks, I mean, they're female uh, CEOs at most of them. Um, I think it's 50% of engineers um, um, are women. You know, it's like very solid Mm -hmm. kind of gender balance uh, here. So maybe that's why. But I I do acknowledge that there must be somewhere. I just haven't Mm -hmm. really... Experienced it myself. Uh, recently, I uh, I was part of, um, of some kind of seminar that was talking about the values of people, and the guy leading the seminar said something that really stick to my mind: is that women value security, where men value trust. So it's like this balance of um, who values what more. Uh-huh. So this lady felt insecure that she can lose her job or clients yeah. if she doesn't come back. Yeah. Uh, a, a man would basically know I have the trust of my clients and they wait for me to come back. Yeah. Uh, so it will be it's a, just um, as different human beings having different like social roles in the society. This is something mm. that helps me. Like, is is this lady feeling insecure? Something is mm. like. Uh, clicking buttons because she's like she's going to lose something this is how i i think about it no i think there's there's definitely that and i think there was a harvard business review study Mm. uh a while ago that actually uh kind of studied what questions are being asked of female founders and male founders and to your point like female Mm. founders are more asked about the downside, like how are they going to protect in a downturn? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. How are they going to be careful with their expenses and costs? Well, the men were asked, like, how are you going to grow? What's your vision? Where do you think, uh, what ceilings you're going to break? Like, how are you going to explode? So I think it's just natural. I think also maybe biological and socioeconomic factors mm-hmm. play into this. But if you're like biologically, Uh, a caretaker of a young child like you're more about protecting rather than uh, it's an identity isn't it yeah so it's a you know it's just how it is really I I think that's why it's great to have balance so Mm. uh, and uh, communication and um, communicate your fears is something that I've learned from my mentor so Mm. it's a way of, of cutting it uh this gap between people that work together so you are part of this european women in vc initiative uh that aims at promoting diversity in mm-hmm, the industry mm-hmm. uh, why did you join it and um what is the impact you've already observed on the european scale 
Yeah, so that, that started about a year ago by um, two women that collected from the 27 European member states. Mm -hmm. they, they got one female representative, an investor from those 27, mm -hmm. actually 25, because two countries didn't have a female investor, Romania being one of them. Wow. Um, and so we got together and they, they what they did is they did the survey in those countries to see how many funds there are in each country, how many female investors are in each fund. And so they concluded in Europe that depending on the country between, I think, somewhere eight and nine percent of investors are female, of, of, of right, uh, Czech writers really are female. Um, and only about two to three percent of the capital raised goes to female founders. And so that like I didn't realize it because I don't feel I mean, our team is very small and we have 50 50 kind of men and mm. women. And I honestly never look at a person in terms of their gender or mm -hmm. background or religion or anything. And I never thought about it. But when these results came out, um, we thought that we should talk about this gender gap. And it's not necessarily um, all that uh, we can solve. It's also because maybe there are fewer investors and fewer female founders, and, and part of it is due to, to that, uh, why, why they're getting mm. uh, lower percentages. But another part is due to just the fact that maybe they're not courageous enough or confident enough to become founders or become investors. Um, so, I mean, there are two different aspects that we have to address and study further. I've met some amazing Romanian uh, founders that are ladies, so uh, it's, let's hope that um, we have a positive tendency in female started companies to uh, get and ask for more. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, what about uh, the change um, about the way that women in leadership positions are perceived in the business world in general? Um, do you think there's something that is like should change uh, or any any feedback you have on this? Um, I mean, then again, it depends on which region you look at. Mm. I think in Bulgaria, there are many uh, leaders in those positions. Um, I think, again, back to the point I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, just and what you said earlier, like women are not maybe as confident as mm -hmm. men because I feel like they need to know a lot more to feel confident. Uh, they need to know all hundred facts about one thing, while yes. a man would need would you know three and kind of yeah. play with them. Good uh, feel it. <laughs> it just yeah, I mean exactly. So I just yeah. that's how it is, and so yeah. that's one thing that I would advise like young women to do is I mean it's a cliche saying believe in yourself, but it's actually what you need to do is practice, and so even if you they're not certain that you know mm. everything just like wing it in a way there's this hbs professor amy cuddy that i really love listening mm. to and she has this theory of not make it till uh, fake it till you make it but fake it till you become it so the mm. more you practice the more confident you become and the more you believe yeah. in yourself and it's you know uh, it's just how you become uh, good at what you do and and not worry about judgment or criticism or how what people think of you there's an amazing concept that I adore by uh, Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach. He uh, he says um, the four C, the system of four Cs: courage, commitment, credibility, and confidence. Yeah. It's a spiral going upward, which means yeah. that throughout all this, like commitment towards courageous actions that you do builds a confidence and uh, this builds credibility and then builds your confidence and then you start something more courageous yeah so it's yeah, exactly. it's doing it it's yeah. basically not faking it but just doing it and doing it again and again so it's a great yeah. way of putting it thank you yeah. Elena um, what are the values that you would like to pass on to the next generation of women in tech or VC I mean, maybe that, like, believe in yourself mm. and not be afraid of failure. Mm. Um, not, like, protect your downside all the time. Um, just look at the upside, be courageous, and uh, be ready to make mistakes and learn from those mm. mistakes. We've actually, I think, if I think about the last four years of us as a fund, uh, we had ups and downs with our companies, and I think the most we learned, to be honest, is from those downs and those challenges that we faced. Um, 
and how to overcome them and build more confidence and like positive thinking mm. and not like fear failure and what comes next yeah there is a metaphor about climbing mountains that's not always uh, going upwards towards mm. uh, the peak you sometimes need to go down in the valley and then uh, then start your next climb you are part of a hiking expedition to climb kilimanjaro so uh, what does this experience mean to you and um, what do you learn about yourself in these very different circumstances yeah that was a, a tough experience because it's mm. close to six thousand mm. meters very dusty uh yeah and uh the first thing that you learn is you have to like live without running water and <laughs> so you can't uh you know take showers or clean yourself and just like seven days in a, in a tent uh but you know that's easier to get used to what's harder to get used to is not being able to breathe especially like the last few days it's like you take a breath you make a st step forward and then you stop and take another breath it's like at night you wake up because you have no oxygen and you can't sleep uh your brain can does not get it and your lungs does not get it mm. um and so i think what's I learned and why I thought I was able to go because some people did not is not to think about how many meters or kilometers you have until the very end but kind of take it one step at a time so you take a step you take a breath you take another step you take another breath and just one step at a time without being so focused on the end goal like just one step at a time I mean that's that's also another advice I would tell founders or anyone else like not be so focused on the end but focus on how you're going to take the next step and the next breath it's a marathon it's not a sprint isn't yeah it? great um of course uh, we're heading off to the, the end of our conversation i would like to ask you you said uh, you parent uh, you have this very responsible task of helping founders grow and scale mm. um, but you would also need some time for yourself so how do you unwind um, I drink wine <laughs> <laughs> drink I, wine and eat chocolate <laughs> yeah, yeah chocolate not so much but <laughs> for wine <laughs> sorry this is the absolute cliche for like women yeah, unwinding yeah. is wine and chocolate sorry, no no I, I also do a lot of sports so I, um, <laughs> I ski I actually started kite surfing this summer so oh. uh Um, I like to travel a lot as well. I have a lot of friends from living mm. in the States from mm. all different parts of the world. So I like to travel and visit them or go to other new places. I'm, I'm also just curious about different subjects. So I read about random topics. Like even at Stanford, I took African cinema, French cinema, film production, drawing where we had to draw like live models. Um, random classes like that and random topics like that i read a lot of biographies on people and um just like the standard things like mm. netflix and <laughs> so is there anything in biographies that stand, stands out for you uh, the recent one i read was on michelle obama mm -hmm. um, becoming yeah It's i actually read book. like uh, also barack obama's mm. biography but i liked hers but. more <laughs> Uh, so that's that's one of the recent ones I read. You know, I've yeah. also read like Steve Jobs and a um, bunch of other like mm. famous people. But that that really stands out because she comes from a poor family and just her life was very interesting yeah. to me. Uh, if you haven't uh, had the chance to uh, read Shoe Dog, the memoirs of Phil Knight, oh the yeah, founder yeah, yeah. Of it's Nike. my to read list. Yeah, it yeah, is yeah. it is a book worth reading it's an amazing story about starting up from the trunk of your own car and yeah. uh, becoming the it's a case study that the, absolutely uh, into, like those business schools yeah blue ribbon shoes what's mm -hmm. it brand called in japan blue ribbon what's blue ribbon he just saw it somewhere on the map mm -hmm. uh, uh, all right um i'm a huge fan of books do you think that most of the founders read or they're just focused on working on their startups do they spend enough time on like developing themselves through courses or yeah i mean maybe they don't really have that much time at the beginning mm. they're mm. so focused and it's a lonely journey that you know you, you're like struggling and if you have good investors that are empathetic then you have someone to lean on but not always you do mm. and so it's like i think you just get worked up a lot more um if you're like that by yourself uh, i mean i 
they should if they don't like steve jobs you know took a calligraphy class mm -hmm. and that helped him even though there was no connection i mean that's why i took those other classes i had no idea what might come out of yeah. of it and um so i think you have to be open and curious and develop as a person also when you said um when you spoke his name uh, steve jobs uh, i immediately linked the return and steve jobs into a name uh anthony christoph Mm. The art director of Pixar for mm. 18 years, who is now in Bulgaria and helping Bulgarian gaming and video yeah. uh, developers um, develop careers in in this, which having the IT background that we have might be something that's bringing a lot of value towards our ecosystem too. So another yeah. amazing person spent a lot of time in the States, came back. I think he came through the return initiative. I think really? that's when he got really interested. I might be mistaken, yeah. uh, but I think like yeah. we're maybe, I don't know. I think that just the connection with Bulgaria made him reconsider mm. coming back. He was part of a, a conference in the summer and he pointed out uh, uh, a scene in Wally, one of my favorite animation, mm. Mm. Uh, about like ships docked in a port mm. and one of the ship's name was Bulgaria in Bulgarian. <laughs> so we're like, see, there's an Easter egg here that, that, yeah. that I've placed. So, uh, yeah, there's you a huge... It in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's this uh, huge um, route that brings mm. people back to their home places. And I'm very happy that yeah. people like you and Anthony um, are doing your best to share your, not only your skills and knowledge, but also your connections mm. and building uh, initiatives like Bulgarian Innovation Hub is just p showing that it works. It works yeah. very, very well. So thank you very much for doing this. No, thank you for having me. It so it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Elena Havacera, thank you for, for spending your, your um, precious time with us. And uh, let us uh, meet in a couple of months and having more and more uh, successful startup exits from Let's Bulgaria. Hope, yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. So see you next week in the Recursive Podcast. Next on the Recursive Podcast, Vince Gaiderjiev, the founder of Alcatraz AI, the US-Bulgarian company improving security with biometric authentication. Amazing journey. Uh, to get funding for for hardware or hardware as a service, actually for hardware is almost impossible. You can get to a Kickstarter maybe. Mm -hmm. Hardware as a service in in a, in a B2B kind of a business, very tough. Uh, out of 100 VCs, all the tier ones and two VCs, um, I would say 90% will give you a gentle, nice excuse uh, that they, they want to wait for traction or whatever uh, uh, you know the, the 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 reason is, but actually, mm -hmm. it's just very risky. Uh, especially if you're creating hardware that's complex that requires something that they like it it it, it requires software and hardware and infrastructure and uh, different certifications. The, usually, the VCs will not go deep to understand what's going on, and they'll need some proof points that this, um, that this uh, business model is going to work. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. especially to recover, you have supply chain issues and components, logistical issues, inventory issues. You have to make the product to, to eventually sell it. You have to deploy the product. You have to maintain the product. Depending on the industry, uh, you know, um, there are issues in how you're deploying and connecting to the infrastructure. You need a lot more money to create something like, like, like hardware, you know, drones and, you know, self-driving cars, if it's, you know, a hardware module or, you know, robots, or in our case, we, our, 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 our rock, our product is basically a robot without arms. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.